0: If you've grown up in church, chances are you've heard a pastor preach on something called the cost of following Jesus. And you've probably heard many people say that Christians have to pick up their crosses. Jesus says something like this in three of the gospel accounts, twice in Matthew. Now every time I've heard someone quote this passage, they conclude the same thing. You've probably heard something similar too. They say that to truly be a Christian, you have to deny yourself, forsaking your life, your desires, your hopes and dreams, and you have to do something called pick up your cross. And this term, picking up or carrying your cross, is frequently quoted by Christians to mean something like, a Christian has to suffer or sacrifice for the Lord. If you aren't willing to carry your cross, they'll say, then you're not worthy of Jesus. I mean, Jesus said this, right? So isn't that what he meant? And some Christians have long concluded that being a follower of Jesus requires misery, pain, and suffering. Carrying your cross must mean that a Christian life is difficult. And we should assume, because of this, that the problems in our life are from God, and this is what it means to pick up your cross. You can't ask God for help because this is what it means to be a Christian. That suffering is just you carrying your cross for Jesus. Because didn't Jesus say whoever loses his life for his sake will find it? In reality, some pastors have used this verse to bully or guilt Christians into serving the Lord, or what they called serving the Lord. And Christians have been led to believe we are only worthy of Christ's love and help as long as we are suffering, worn out, or in some way unhappy. But that doesn't agree with the Bible, does it? Jesus said he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And didn't he promise to give us rest, not misery? So is the Christian life one of joy or one of pain? How you answer that question will have a tremendous impact on your life. Some Christians even think that carrying their cross means having an illness or physical suffering. Oh, this sickness is just my cross to bear, they'll say. But does God want us to suffer as a way to grow or prove our devotion to him? Does picking up a cross mean we have to give up our lives first and hope that that will be enough for God to accept us? We know past generations of Christians went through suffering, right? So why should our life be any different? Our real reward will come in heaven. We just have to sacrifice and suffer and sacrifice and suffer until we die. And if we're not willing to do that, we are not worthy to call ourselves Christians. Now, does that sound right to you? If it does, it probably is because you've heard this teaching or something like it all your life. But it's not true. The scriptures say we are saved by grace through faith. God saves us, not based on anything we do. We are saved because Jesus Christ suffered and died in our place on the cross. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. You are not worthy of this favor, and you cannot earn it by what you do. Grace is freely given to all who believe in Jesus Christ. In reality, you are not worthy of anything good from God. But you can ask for good things and even expect God to do good things for you because of grace. It's not fair, and it's not equal but it is the only way we can receive from God. Because, after all, we were dead in our sins, and it took God coming down to save us. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are saved by grace, we are in a covenant of grace, then you know that carrying your cross does not make you worthy of Christ. Nothing you do makes you worthy of Christ. Suffering doesn't make you worthy any more than a good work makes you worthy. So what was Jesus talking about? In my last episode, I spoke on why Christians suffer. I explained that God allows suffering, but his plan is to help us by grace when we suffer. We don't have to stay in a miserable situation. We should expect God to deliver us because he's promised that he will deliver us in many verses in the Bible. But what did Jesus mean when he said, pick up your cross? Are Christians to make themselves worthy of Christ's love through living harsh, self-denying lifestyles? Were those abusive preachers correct when they guilted us into Christian service by quoting this passage? How can that be true when we are standing in grace? Well, we are going to look at all of that and discover what the Bible actually says. I am Adam Casolino, and this is the Gospel Talker Podcast. There are four passages in the Gospels where Jesus uses this term, pick up your cross. They are found in Matthew chapter 10 verses 37 through 39, Matthew chapter 16 verses 24 through 27, Mark 8 verses 34 through 38, and Luke 9 verses 23 through 26. Now we're going to look at them in a minute, but first there's something important I want to go over. You may have never heard about this principle before if your church doesn't teach how to study the Bible properly. So we're going to get into this. I explained in previous episodes that the Bible is entirely relevant to us today. It is God-breathed scripture, meaning it is the very Word of God. From Genesis to Revelation, you will learn from God when you read the Bible. But there is a very basic rule that you need to learn first. When you read a book of the Bible you need to acknowledge the original audience. This is part of what we call reading a text within its proper context. Now, this is obvious when you read other books, but many Christians make the mistake of thinking every Bible passage is immediately applicable to them, regardless of the circumstances at the time of the writing. Notice I said immediately applicable. It's still applicable, but you first need to understand the original context, including the original audience. Some people forget that the 66 books of the Bible were written many centuries ago, and they were written to people other than us at very different times in human history. They also had different cultures, different languages that needed to be taken into account. Does that mean the Bible isn't relevant to us? Of course not. All it means is that you need to know the context of the passage that you are reading, and that includes the original intended audience. Of course, we do this when we read passages where a person is speaking to another person or group of people. Like when Joshua, at the end of his book, is speaking to the nation of Israel, we know he's speaking to those people. And we need to remember that Joshua was not speaking to us, because we weren't alive back then. But God will speak to you today when you read the Bible, because it is his word. God's word does not fade. It will not pass away. It cannot grow old or become outdated. But God has communicated his word to us through books, songs, and letters. And he used the circumstances at the time of the writings to give us timeless revelation. And so that requires us to know the context of the book or passage we are reading. We can't simply jump into a book of the Bible and assume that passage is immediately applicable to us. And you wouldn't do this with any other book, right? So imagine, for instance, you're reading a book on the Civil War. And it was a book that was published, perhaps, within the last 20 or 50 years. So you know that most of the text written in the book was by an author who who did the history, and he's explaining the war to a modern reader, so he's writing to someone like you. However, the book might include excerpts from letters or newspapers from the time of the war. Sometimes in, in these kinds of books, there'll be a little box or something on the side with a quote from someone who lived during that time. There might be a letter from a Union soldier to his wife back at home, or a letter from a general to President Lincoln. So when you read that text, you know it's not being written to you. It's written to someone else. But you're still going to learn quite a bit from that letter just by reading it. Now, your brain knows how to get information from that letter without thinking it was literally written to you. If that soldier wrote something in his letter like, oh, I love you, Abigail, my beloved wife, you're not going to sit there and go, ah! this man loves me? Of course not. That's obvious in any book that we read. So the same thing needs to be done when we read the Bible. Now, the Bible is not just a historical book. It is the inspired word of God. It's coming from God. God continues to speak to us today through his unchanging word. But the books of the Bible are historical. They have a historical significance that we can't overlook. That means you need to remember the original audience of the book you are reading or the original people that the person in the book is speaking to so you could understand what the text meant to them. And once you understand how the text meant to them, then you can begin to ask yourself, how does it apply to me? Now, there are many diligent pastors and teachers who do this when they preach. But every student of the Bible needs to do this when they embark on a study. Now, it's a side note, When you read the Bible and you see a promise from God, you can immediately apply that promise to yourself. Now, why do I say that? Because in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20, Paul writes that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. The promises that God has in the Bible apply to you in Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him. So you're not Abraham, of course, and God did not appear to you when you were 75 and said you're going to have a son 25 years from now. But is it wrong for you to read that story in Genesis, ask God to give you and your spouse a baby, and then trust he will provide just like he provided for Abraham? Absolutely not. You can do that because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Now when you read the Old Testament, it's very important to remember the original audience. At the time those books were written, the people of God were under the law of Moses. Their covenant with God was founded on this law and had specific requirements that the people were meant to keep. If they disobeyed God's commandments, he was obligated to punish them. But we are no longer under that covenant. In fact, Christ fulfilled the law when he suffered on the cross. We actually fulfill the righteous requirements of the law through faith in him. Now, this is important for our entire discussion, so I want to emphasize it here. Paul explains that Christ fulfilled the requirements of the Jewish law for the whole world when he suffered on the cross, and he explains this in part in Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So everyone who fails to obey the law are under a curse. That includes all of us, both Jews and Gentiles. We've broken God's law and we're cursed. But Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. He took on the curse or punishment for our law-breaking, So that right now we could receive the blessing of Abraham, which includes forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, fellowship with God. So one of the things Jesus did for us on the cross was to meet the law's demands for righteousness. He suffered in our place so that we can be forgiven and we're actually righteous according to the standards of the law. Not through our own works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in that passage, we've received the Holy Spirit through faith in Him. And those who have the Spirit fulfill the law. Those who live by the Spirit's guidance fulfill the law, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in both these passages, among others, explain that we are no longer under the law of Moses, because Jesus fulfilled the law when he suffered for us on the cross. So today those who believe in Jesus are not obligated to follow the law to be saved. So that means, when you read the Old Testament, you need to remind yourself that you are not under that covenant. You can't read the warnings God made to Israel about punishment and think they apply to you. But you will still learn from those texts. They are scripture. You just need to interpret what they are saying in light of the new covenant of grace. In fact, Jesus said that the Old Testament text spoke of him. And when he spoke with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he taught from the entire Old Testament the things concerning himself. So you could actually learn more about Jesus through reading the Old Testament as much as the New Testament. The key to all of this is to understand who the original author was, when he was speaking, to whom he was speaking to, and why he was speaking this to them. Now you might be asking yourself, how do I even find out this context? Well, if you want to quickly learn the context of a book, you don't have to go through any large extremes or anything like that, you could use a Bible commentary or a good study Bible. Now, these resources will often contain an introduction that tells you who the original author was, his audience, and all those other details, and this will help you when you are studying the Bible. Now, you don't need a study Bible or commentary every time you read the Bible. But when you want to know this important context, it's good to review it so you have it in mind as you read it. So much confusion and bad teaching could be avoided if we do this. There have been many, many preachers who grab random verses from the Old Testament and build entire sermons out of them. And they would fearmonger the church to think that God was going to punish them because of their sin based on a particular verse from the Old Testament, even though Jesus has died and rose again. So to avoid that kind of thing, we remember the context and we interpret and study the Bible, even the Old Testament, in light of the New Testament. So how do we apply this to the books of the New Testament, right? We started out talking about the Gospels. Well, most of the New Testament is comprised of letters written by the apostles to various churches. And Paul's letters are immediately applicable to us because he was writing to Christians under the New Covenant. And the same can be said mostly of the general letters, which were those written by the other apostles, Peter, John, and James. But what about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, you might not realize these have very specific audiences that you need to know when you study them. During the early days of the first century, the apostles were alive and they were the ones teaching the church. Christians learned about Jesus and the good news from the very men who knew him. The apostles then entrusted this teaching to elders and pastors and other leaders within the church. Now, as the church near the end of the first century and the apostles began to die, it became important to record the gospel so future generations would have the truth unadulterated by the passage of time or false teachers. The four books we call the Gospels were accounts of Christ's life written by either eyewitnesses or others who were courting eyewitness accounts to very specific audiences they wanted to know the good news. We traditionally call these writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the evangelists. So why do we do that? Because the books that they wrote were intended to be evangelistic, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to people so they could believe. The writers wrote these books with the hope that people would read them and believe. John explains this in John chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We know Luke addressed his book to someone named Theophilus, and he said his intentions were this in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He says, he wrote these things that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Know the certainty implies strengthening or securing this man's faith. The book would have given Theophilus confidence to believe that Jesus is the Messiah based on the authority and thoroughness of Luke's account. Now, that doesn't mean Christians can't or shouldn't study these books. Of course, that'd be foolish. What it does mean is that we need to remember the purpose of these books. Each book had an intended audience and specific goal. Matthew and Mark appear to have been written to Jews. Their original audiences were Jewish people who needed to hear the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And because of this, the author focused on Jesus' earthly ministry to Israel. They focused on his teachings that would have been relevant to Jews as well as the other signs that he performs that proved Jesus was the Messiah. So what about Luke? Well, Theophilus might have already been a believer, but he was clearly Jewish or had a very thorough schooling in Jewish customs, because Luke takes the time to cover details that would be important for a Jewish person to know. In the very first chapter, he describes John the Baptist's lineage as a Levite, that his parents were from the tribe of Levi descended of Aaron, and then he even focuses on aspects of Jesus' Jewishness, that he was circumcised on the eighth day, and that he was taken to the temple and presented, and his family gave an offering according to the law. But John's gospel, on the other hand, was written to Gentiles. He explains Jewish customs from time to time in his book that Gentiles wouldn't know. He explained what the word rabbi meant, or that Christ means messiah, these are things that a non-Jew wouldn't have known immediately, so John takes the time to explain. His book was written later on to the church to share the good news with non-Jews. And of course, it's used for that purpose to this day. Now, the Gospel of John includes a lot that the other Gospels don't have, and if you've studied the four Gospels, you know this. John includes many private encounters between Jesus and individuals, and it often includes things Jesus didn't say to the masses. That's because John's book focuses on what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry about the promise of the coming new covenant. Specifically, the Gospel of John focuses on that Jesus is God, that we have eternal life when we believe in his name. The synoptic Gospels, the first three Gospels, are actually different. You'll notice that in them, Jesus rarely talks about the new covenant. In fact, he doesn't even mention that term, New Covenant, until the Last Supper when he institutes communion. He says in Matthew 26, verses 26-29, through 29, that the blood of the New Covenant was shed for the forgiveness of sins. These three Gospels emphasize Jesus' teachings on the law and other things the Jews were preoccupied with at the time. You have to remember the Synoptic Gospels focuses on Jesus' public ministry to the Jewish people because the original audiences of the book were also Jewish. And so that brings us to an important question And generally speaking. Why didn't Jesus talk much about the New Covenant publicly to Israel during his earthly ministry? Why was it only, as we see in John, to select people that he talked about principles of the New Covenant, salvation, eternal life, the giving of the Holy Spirit, To individual people, but not to the masses. Why did he speak about the law and other things to the masses, but not this? Well, that requires that you understand Jesus' role as the Messiah in the first place. So let's have a crash course in something called the Kingdom of God. Did you know that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Israel? I say that because not all Christians may realize this. You might think he came to start a religion called Christianity, but that's not true. Many years ago, God raised up a people called Israel. He gave them a land and said that they would live in that land always if they obeyed him. But they didn't obey him. Generations of Israelites turned away from God and worshipped idols. And because of this, God punished them by taking away their kingdom. They lost their land, their fortunes, and their right to rule the promised land themselves. All this, of course, is covered in the books of the Old Testament. But because he is a good and gracious God, he promised Israel they would not face punishment forever. He would actually restore their lost kingdom and even put a descendant of David back on the throne. And God speaks quite a bit about this promised son of David. He would restore godly worship to Israel as a great high priest. He would be a perfect king and ruler. He would bring an era of peace to Israel and the whole world. Through that would fulfill the promise of Abraham that through his seed all nations would be blessed. This promised son of David became known as the Messiah. The Messiah would save Israel. He would also be a teacher who would restore knowledge of God's law. He would be a perfect ruler. He would heal his people. He would punish the ungodly nations who oppressed them and many more things besides. And all this you need to know if you are to understand the gospel text, including John. So when Jesus first came to earth, he came to his people Israel. And his message was this, from Mark 1.15, The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. And this meant, Israel, your Messiah is here. If you want God to restore his heavenly kingdom to earthly Israel, you need to repent of your sins and believe in the one he has sent. Now, there are many things Jesus had to do to prove to Israel that he was the Messiah. His constant healing of their diseases was one of these things, as were the other miracles he often performed. But his sermons were also a way that God proved to Israel that Jesus was the promised one. Now, this is very, very important if you want to properly understand Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Before Jesus came, the people of Israel were ruled by men called rabbis. In that society, rulers were also religious teachers. There was a Gentile emperor controlling the land, Rome, but they allowed Israel to manage its own society. So that meant Jewish society was governed by these religious leaders called rabbis or elders. They not only taught the Jews what the scriptures said, but they ruled them like judges. The most powerful rulers were the high priests. They governed through a council of elders. These men descended from a man named Aaron, the very first high priest. This group controlled the temple and also taught the people. They are called Sadducees in the Bible, which describes their specific religious and political views. But there was another group that also taught the people. This group of rabbis or teachers did not have the same political background as the Sadducees because they weren't priests, they didn't descend from Aaron. They didn't serve in the temple, and only a few of them were on the high council. But they were very influential among the people because there was a lot of them, and they ran the local houses of worship called synagogues. This group not only taught the law, but had authority to decide cases among the people because they were also elders. And they were respected by everyone, and were very rich and powerful. And these people you know as Pharisees, now there were other religious groups, of course, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the most prominent, so they're spoken of quite a bit in the Bible. So what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, at the time of Jesus' coming, these groups were misinterpreting the law and teaching false things to the Jews. Now, there was a lot of things they taught that were wrong, but the main thrust was this: If you perfectly obeyed the law. God would bless you with wealth and health. But if you fail to obey the law, God will punish you with poverty and sickness. And of course, to actually obey the law, they taught that a Jew had to follow all these rules that they themselves came up with. This wasn't just the law of Moses, but hundreds if not thousands of regulations they added to the law. And this was called the oral tradition because it goes back to generations of rabbis and what they taught. And each generation added more and more rules on top of the old rules. Now, ironically, these regulations made it harder and easier to obey the law. Well, how is that possible? Well, it was easier, so-called, because the rules they made up were very superficial. They focused on appearances, what someone wore, what they ate, things like that. They didn't touch on someone's heart where sin actually comes from. But these rules also made it harder to obey the law because there were so many rules that the average person would have been overwhelmed to keep them all. Now the rabbis did this on purpose so that the people would be so frustrated that they could not keep all these rules and they would be forced to rely on the rabbi's constant direction if they wanted to please God. And since these rules were mostly superficial, the rabbis made it look like they were the only ones actually obeying God. And because these men were already wealthy, they could claim their wealth and power was proof that they were righteous. So what was the big problem, aside from what you might already realize? The truth is, the law was never meant to provide salvation through works. The law was supposed to be hard to follow. It was supposed to be impossible. So that the Jewish people would realize they were all sinners, rich and poor, unable to save themselves through following the law. Now, David learned this during his own lifetime, as did anyone who sincerely tried to keep the law. But during Jesus' time, these rabbis obscured the true purpose of the law, blinding Israel from learning what God was actually saying. The law's standard was too high for any person to perfectly obey. If you tried, you failed, and realized you were a sinner. There was only one thing you could do, Throw yourself at the mercy of God. The rabbis knew they were just as sinful as anyone else, but they hid their sin through superficial works and appearances. And they looked down on the filthy masses who struggled to obey God. And they wanted everyone to be convinced that they were the only righteous people in Jewish society. As you can imagine, Jesus was pretty upset with these men. They were the elders of Israel. They were supposed to be teaching God's people the truth. Instead, they were exploiting Israel for their own wealth and power. Jesus, as the Messiah, had a lot of bad teaching to undo. And most of what he taught was aimed at dismantling the rabbi's false teachings on the law. Plenty of Jesus' sermons in Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on restoring the true meaning of the law. You know, he often starts a a teaching by by saying, you heard that it was said. Okay, in those moments, Jesus was specifically referencing the law of Moses or one of the rabbi's teachings. So what was Jesus' main point in teaching on the law? Well, it was this. God demands perfection. If you think you can be righteous by obeying the law, you are utterly wrong. Everyone, even those rabbis, have failed to obey God perfectly. They are all sinners unable to earn God's approval through works. And so the only right response to this reality is repentance and faith in the person he has sent, the Messiah. Okay, this is what you need to understand and keep in mind as you read the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize these teachings from Christ about the law and the law's perfect standard because they were being written to Jews who were raised... To be taught under the law. And they were taught the wrong thing, that you actually could be saved by following the law because of how the rabbis corrupted it. So Jesus is coming to them saying, you thought you can't commit adultery? Well, if you lust after someone, that is adultery in your heart. That is a much higher standard than what the rabbis were teaching. And if you were there at the time, if you were a Jew listening to Jesus's teachings, you realized that you were in big trouble because you've broken God's laws again and again and again and there was no sacrifice big enough to completely wipe your slate clean. So the only thing you could do is to throw yourself at God's mercy saying, Lord, help me, I am a sinner. Now Matthew, Mark, Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, of course, were written after Jesus' death and resurrection to Jews who were still trying to keep the law. There were Jews all over the world who needed to hear about Jesus and were still in the same predicament as the Jews Jesus spoke to during his time on earth. And these people needed to realize they could not keep the law themselves. They were sinners just like everyone else. So the apostles wrote these books in the hope that the Jewish people all over the world would hear what the Messiah had to say, realize their need for salvation, and believe in Jesus. So with all that being said, we need to conclude one important fact that we don't often think of when we read these books. Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry, was still under the old covenant. It was still under the law. When Jesus said, be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect, he wasn't speaking to born-again Christians. There were no Christians yet. He was speaking to Jews who had been taught that they can be righteous as long as they obeyed all the rabbis' rules. Jesus shattered this false view by restoring the truth of the law. And this was why the rabbis and rulers hated him so much. Israel knew that the Messiah would bring the law back to its true meaning, And Jesus did that. The law was perfect and demanded perfect obedience. No one could live up to that standard, not even the Pharisees or Sadducees. Therefore, all of Israel needed a Savior who would fulfill the law on their behalf. It's important to remember this context when you read what Jesus said in these Gospels before you ask yourself, how does it apply to me? Who is Jesus speaking to? What were the circumstances when he said it? Why did he say it? So at this moment, you might be asking yourself, well, how do I know the difference between the context of Jesus' teachings? Does this apply to Christians? Does this apply to Jews? Well, it's not as hard as you might expect. As I said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus spends much of his time correcting false teachings about the law. That's not all he does, but you have to remember his ministry was to the Jewish people who needed to recognize him as the Messiah. So much of what he says in these gospels isn't immediately relevant to a Christian today because we are not Jews under the old covenant. Now notice I said immediately relevant. What Jesus said is still relevant to us. However, this is the key. You need to interpret what he said before he went to the cross in light of what he did for us on the cross. So what do I mean by that? Well, just think of it. None of the people Jesus taught before his death and resurrection were Christians. How could they be? Jesus hadn't atoned for sin yet. And we need to remember that everything that happens in the Gospels before his resurrection happened under the Old Covenant all those Israelites, including his own disciples, were still under the law. Only after Jesus fulfilled the law through his suffering on the cross was the law fulfilled. This is why Jesus often spoke in a way that sounds like the law, because the law, the requirements of the law under the old covenant were still in effect in Israel until he hung on the cross and said, it is finished and until he rose again with the new resurrection life that he can give to all those who believe in him, making us born again Christians. That was not possible until Jesus died and rose again. So everything he said before that needs to be understood in light of that reality. Christians often misinterpret much of Jesus' teachings because, like we said, they didn't realize they were immediately relevant to Jews under the law. So they apply to us differently now. They still apply to us. You still must study these Gospels if you want to grow in faith. But we need to interpret them in light of the finished work. Now, if you're having trouble with what I'm saying, okay, hang in there. Here is an example that illustrates this truth very effectively. Okay, let's look at what Jesus teaches about forgiveness before he went to the cross. Okay, Jesus said this in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, this is pretty strong language, isn't it? And should we conclude as Christians that if today we fail to forgive someone, God won't forgive our sins? Is that right to teach? Should a preacher go before the church and say, Listen, if you don't forgive people when they sin against you, God won't forgive your sins. And therefore, the only conclusion we can make is that you're going to go to hell. Now, that might seem very strange to you, but believe it or not, there are people who teach this. Years ago, when I was in Bible college, I remember hearing a sermon from an up-and-coming popular uh, pastor at the time. And he was well-known within certain Christian circles. And he was teaching on this very passage about forgiveness. And he told a story about an old woman who served as a secretary of his church for many years. Okay, this woman was like a second mother to him. He loved her and cherished her, but sadly she passed away. He's the one who um, gave her her eulogy and her funeral. And the first day he goes back to church with her gone, he was just so racked with grief. He just couldn't get past uh, the sorrow he felt because this woman passed away. And he said in his story, he asked God to give him a vision of her in heaven, happy and at peace and no longer sick, just so he could feel better. And he claims that God told him he could not show her in heaven because she actually went to hell. In shock, the preacher asked why. And he claims that God told him that this beloved Christian who served the church for decades refused to forgive her sister of something she did to her a long time ago. And because of that, God did not forgive her and she went to hell. Yikes, I know. This is grade A unbiblical nonsense. And not to mention it's very destructive to those who believe it. Now, does God want us to forgive others? Of course he does. There's no room for unforgiveness in the heart of a Christian. But will God send a born-again Christian to hell because of this? No. The Bible makes it very clear we are saved by grace through faith. You were totally forgiven of your sins the moment you believed in Jesus. All of your sins, including unforgiveness, were washed away. You do not earn forgiveness, and you cannot lose forgiveness when you sin. Does that mean the New Testament encourages sinning and encourages unforgiveness? Of course not. But it does not say God will send you to hell if you refuse to forgive someone. Jesus never said a forgiven Christian will go to hell because of unforgiveness. To suggest that is saying that unforgiveness is a sin too great for Jesus' atonement on the cross. So how do we interpret what Jesus said? Remember, Jesus said this before he went to the cross, before the new covenant was enacted. As I said, this is happening while the old covenant is in place. The Jewish rabbis were actually teaching that it was okay to hate your enemies. And Israel had a lot of enemies to hate. The Samaritans, the Romans, foreigners who had trampled over their lands, and anyone who offended them. And they were happy to harbor anger towards someone and refuse to forgive them. But that was not in keeping with God's law. You couldn't claim to love God and hate your neighbor. So Jesus was giving them this sober truth. Under the law, you must forgive someone or God won't forgive you. And that is how you know Jesus was teaching from the law. The law was structured this way if you do good, God will bless you. If you do bad, God will punish you. To learn more about this, check out my first episode where I explain this. But that was how the law worked. In this case, Jesus said, if you do good, forgive someone. God will do good for you. He'll forgive you. But if you do bad, refuse to forgive, then God will punish you by not forgiving you. So do you see the pattern? The Jews, before Jesus's atonement, were obligated to obey the law, and they had to forgive someone, otherwise God would punish them. So, the million-dollar question, how does this passage apply to new covenant believers today who have received God's grace through Jesus' finished work on the cross? We are still called to forgive others, but we are no longer under the law. In fact, as I explained earlier, we've fulfilled the law through faith in Christ. And there's scripture that proves this. Like I said, under the law, Jesus said, forgive, or God won't forgive you. But under grace, God says this, Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Did you catch it? Here it is again in Colossians 3 13. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Are we to forgive people? Of course. But we forgive because God has forgiven us in Christ. Paul does not say forgive or God won't forgive you. Instead, he says because God has forgiven you, you can forgive others. You see how it's been flipped almost? We are already forgiven because of Jesus. We don't forgive others hoping God will forgive us. We know God has forgiven us. And because God has given us this grace, we can show it to others forgiving them that is because this requirement of the law was fulfilled for us in Christ his atoning death on the cross fulfilled the law bringing us forgiveness we are recipients of his fulfillment his finished work when we are not united in him by faith now we understand this might be a lot for some of you out there this is this is big stuff and it might be overwhelming we are delving into complicated issues And there are even pastors and denominations who will argue against me. And some might even say I'm I'm misinterpreting the Gospels. But I'm not. This is basic Bible interpretation. Something that some preachers sadly do not do. Now, if this is going over your head a little bit or if you're confused, just bear with me. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will eventually need to understand this. We are not under the law of Moses. Our relationship with God is not based on what we do. It is based on what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we are sustained as children of God by what Jesus continues to provide for us by grace. Much of what Jesus taught in the first three Gospels, as I said, were to Jews living under the law. Those teachings don't apply to us in the same way. We are not under the law, but under the new covenant of grace. We don't forgive so that God will forgive us. We are forgiven because of Jesus, and therefore we can forgive others. And we need to know how to make this distinction. Now with all that being said, how does this apply to the passage picking up your cross? Let's take a look at one of the passages where Jesus says this. Mark 8 verses 34 and 35. When he had called it a people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Okay, let's remember that first rule of reading a Bible text. We figure out the context, including the original audience. Mark chapter 8 and the Parallel passages in Matthew 16 and Luke 9 happen after a very specific series of events. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 miraculously. The leaders of Israel after this deny his messiahship, committing blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Jesus sent out his apostles to preach for the first time and they come back. And just before this passage, Peter and the disciples affirm Jesus' messiahship. After all this, we see Jesus called his disciples and the people and said what we just read. And as I said, many teachers claim that to be a Christian, you have to give up your entire life. This passage has been used to suggest you are not truly Christian unless you lose your life sacrificing everything you have to prove your worthiness of Jesus. And that has given way to a false notion that the Christian life is simply one of misery and suffering, and that you have no right to expect a good life or ask God for good things, especially healing or provision. But is that what this text means? Again, let's remember the context. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. He wasn't a Pharisee or a Sadducee, but he came teaching. And being a rabbi at that time meant something very specific. Like we said, the rabbis were the rulers of the people. They were very wealthy and famous and influential. And like all religious teachers, they had followers. They had students. But you couldn't just become a rabbi student. You had to prove yourself to them. You had to convince them you were worthy of their time and attention. Being accepted by a Jewish rabbi automatically bestowed on you a special status. The student received perks of his teacher. And because this was so valuable, famous rabbis had the pick of the litter. People came to them begging to be their students, and rabbis could simply pick the ones who seemed most worthy. So what kind of students do you think these men wanted? Remember the men we were talking about. They had corrupted the law so they could become wealthy and powerful and famous. So they would have only wanted students from influential families, wealthy young men, students who would have increased their, the rabbi's, notoriety. But what kind of men did Jesus pick to be his disciples? One was a tax collector for Rome, hated by his own people. Others were stinky, blue-collar fishermen with zero respectability to their name. The rest were commoners from Galilee, a rural part of Israel that the elite looked down on. One of them was actually called a zealot, who was a radical hothead who wanted to overthrow Rome, so he was kind of dangerous. And one was secretly a thief who was stealing from Jesus and the others. Jesus picked the very last men a respectable rabbi would have wanted as followers. And they did nothing to earn this calling. In fact, when Jesus first calls Peter, Peter is confessing that he is a sinner unworthy of Jesus' kindness. And this was different too. Jesus called them. They didn't beg to join him, nor did they try to impress him. This is all the opposite of what the rabbis did. It's because Jesus wasn't interested in becoming a famous, affluent rabbi. He came to save sinners from hell. He did not come to be served as all the other rabbis did, but to serve and to give his life as our ransom. Now, despite all this, the people would have still looked at Jesus the same way they would have looked at the other rabbis. And during this point in his ministry, he was growing in fame. He performed miracles that put him on the same level as Moses. More and more people were hearing about him. His own disciples just said they knew he was the Messiah. So what do you think the people were thinking about Jesus at this moment? hey we found him the messiah and he's going to be the greatest most powerful rabbi the world has ever seen and he's going to become king and we better win his approval and become his followers so that when he does defeat rome and restore the throne of david we could be right there with him rich and powerful and having amazing life yada 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 something along those lines even his disciples would have had this kind of thought in their head but remember the nation's leaders just rejected jesus meaning they would soon try to stop him so following Jesus would not instantly result in fame and fortune for anyone. It could very well mean the death of Jesus' followers. On top of that, there would have been people who, despite the elders' rejection of Jesus, would have been trying to win Christ's approval to follow him. Can we even see this. People would come to him and make boasts and claims wanting to follow him so that they could also be disciples. So while the other rabbis expected their students to do something to impress them, Jesus set a standard that no one could meet. He burst their bubble, their delusions of grandeur, by saying that following him would not lead to the privileged life they wanted. And if you thought you could be worthy of his teaching, you were sorely mistaken. The only thing you could do to prove you were worthy was to deny yourself, take up your cross, and lose your life to follow Jesus. Now, keep in mind, at this point, nobody knew Jesus was going to the cross. Crucifixion was a horrible, humiliating death reserved for the lowest of the low. For him to even mention it here would have terrified many people. Again, Jesus is speaking in terms of the law of merit. If you want to earn a place at Jesus' side under the law, you had to do something nobody can do. Do you see the pattern? The pattern that we went over? You must do this good thing, give up your life, in order for Jesus to do something good to you, accept you as a disciple. That is the law speaking, acceptance by God through merit. Jesus was demanding something nobody can do themselves. And then we have pastors wrongly teaching, you see, you have to pick up your cross to be worthy of Christ, da 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 da. But think about that, what does it even mean to pick up your cross? What is your cross to begin with? Now those who teach that are actually saying you have to sacrifice and suffer to be worthy of Christ, that you are not truly obeying God unless your life is one unbroken chain of misery, or that sacrificing for God is payment to be saved or to stay saved. But hear me when I say this. Jesus will never expect you to do something he hasn't already done himself. You think you have to give your life to him? He already gave his life for you. Pick up your cross? Do you think that Jesus was carrying his cross? No, that was your cross. Jesus did nothing deserving of death. He did nothing that should have resulted in any kind of punishment, let alone something as horrible and humiliating as crucifixion. He picked up your cross and went to Calvary in your place. Jesus is saying the law requires you to pick up your cross, but he picked it up instead. He gave us His life so we can be saved. Paul writes in Philippians that Jesus denied Himself. He emptied Himself of His right to stay in heaven, came down, lived as a man, and then He picked up your cross and died for you. He did not try to save His life, but He lost it so that you can live. Today, under the New Covenant, God is not demanding that you first give up your life to be saved nor does God expect you to pick up your cross before you can become a Christian. Jesus did that for you. Even this was a requirement of the law. God's law demands total and complete dedication. And that is what Jesus is saying. Total dedication to God is the same as giving up your life to obey Him. So how should we properly apply this text to us today? Much like the issue of forgiveness, this principle still holds true but only when we realize how Christ has fulfilled it. Let's look at a passage written after Jesus' death and resurrection for some clarity. Paul says this in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch it? Do you see what Paul is saying here? He's not denying what Jesus said in the Gospels. But just like with forgiveness, a Christian has given up their life because Jesus gave up his life for them first. This is how it works. Jesus died for us and rose again. We receive salvation from him when we believe in him. We are born again, new people saved from sin and made into children of God. And because of that, we are no longer living. It is actually Christ living in us. So Jesus' words do apply to us. We do give up our lives for his sake, but only because he first gave his life for us. Jesus took away our old life of sin and has given us a new life. We are now born again children of God and can gladly say, I've given up my life. I've let it all go. I am now a person within whom Christ is living. This is different than any other way of life. Under the law, you had to make a choice. Give up your life to obey God's law, or suffer and die. And other religions teach the same thing. You must work, you must strive, you must suffer, you must earn before God will accept you. But that is not God's way. Jesus Christ gave up His life for us first. He freely gives us His grace when we believe in Him. And He changes us from sinners into children of God. Because of that, we give up our old lives. And now we are living in Him. So you see what He said you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Me. Well, Jesus denied Himself, picked up your cross, and died for you. So that right now you can believe in Him and receive a brand new life. Being a Christian does not mean you're just a person following a teacher hoping to learn from Him. Being a Christian means you are no longer the same person you once were. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus to give up his life to make you worthy by grace. Jesus' shed blood cleanses us of all our sins. That is what makes us worthy children of God. And that will never change the moment he accepts you. You will forever be worthy in him. That means a Christian's life is one full of peace and joy. Yes, you will face trials. But God provides the solution to your trials. You can look forward to good days because of Jesus. Only when you are receiving from his fullness, grace upon grace, will you be able to say with Paul, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. But we still should ask the question, does the Christian life require some kind of sacrifice? How should grace-focused believers View sacrifice in light of the gospel. Well, that's a question worthy of answering, and we're going to look at it next time. The Gospel Talker podcast is written and produced by Adam Casalino. Visit us online at gospeltalker.substack.com.